And next, we're going to go to our scripture. It's 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, and that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I want to start off by asking you for prayer, because, you know, when I decided to do this study on 1 Peter, prior to even doing the study, I was dreading the whole wives submit to husbands thing, like for months. It was horrible. And I'm going to be entering into another section like this in 1 Peter, and it's in regards to pain and suffering. Because I think a lot of Christians, they kind of cheapen why we go through things, and they have this kind of like take two of these verses and call me in the morning, and, and I, I don't want to do that. And I realize there is a lot of pain, there is a lot of suffering amongst people in our church, and I don't want to make it a shallow study. So if you could please be in prayer for me in the next several weeks, because it's one of those things that I've been nervous about for months, uh, just like the wives submit to husbands thing. But I think that one went okay, right? That went okay? Thank God. So I'm hoping like this pain and suffering that we're going to be talking about in chapter 4 is also going to be okay. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your servant Peter and what he's written to us. I know that the depths of it, Lord, are untouchable, that we can always glean something from your word regardless of how many years we've been following you, how many times we've read your word. You have something fresh for us, something that is ministering directly to us, and I ask for that this morning. I pray, Lord, that humility would come across, as I know that I have some faults in terms of how I present myself, and I ask, God, that your heart would come across. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's been a couple of weeks since we've looked at First Peter because I've been gone, and part of this nervousness that I'm feeling about pain and suffering is because I am a board member at New Day for Children, and, and I do work with sex-trafficked girls between the ages of, sad to say, 8 to 18. And part of this pain and suffering thing that keeps going in my head is because I've heard people that worked with our girls when the girls are wondering why they've gone through what they've done give these really bad answers as to why they experienced what they experienced. And so, please pray for me. Now, before setting the table for this morning's message, I want us to kind of go back to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12 because this is kind of where this section of scripture that we're looking at and we're closing today starts. And it reads this, I have written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this, you know, everything that he wrote in his letter, is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now you keep in mind when Peter wrote this letter. This time that Peter wrote this letter, the Roman Empire during this time was extremely hostile towards Christians. And we recently wrapped up this mini-series within the topic of submission within Peter's first letter, which makes it just all the more amazing that Peter wrote on that topic of being subject to human institutions because he was living in that sort of hostile environment. Now who is this guy Peter? 
Like the nerve that this guy has to write what he writes to us, to tell us to be subject to anyone, let alone folks who are antagonistic and hostile towards us. I mean, who was this guy? This guy was a fisherman 2,000 years ago. What in the world can he tell us today? But it just goes to show you that this is indeed God's word. Because what does a fisherman know 2,000 years ago to address us in our day? That God uses the least qualified, that God uses the least expected to accomplish his purposes. I don't think anyone else would have chosen Peter to do what God had purposed him to do. And what was this? What did God purpose him to do? Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. To be a fisher of men. That's his purpose. That's what he was to do, to be a fisher of men. And today, we'll be looking at the closing verses of this section, which begins with the word, finally, in verse 8. Now, this section of scripture that we've been looking at for the past several weeks actually begins in chapter 2, verse 11 where it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That's a verse we've taken a look back to several times during our study, and it was addressed to everyone who's reading Peter's letter. And from that point, Peter went on to instruct particular groups of people. Right? So how citizens are to live in relation to their respective government how employees are to live in relation to their respective employers, how husbands and wives are to live within the family structure. And after all of those respective relationships, Peter again addresses everyone, starting here in verse 8, finally, all of you, all of you. Because in the previous sections, it was certain people, right? So now it's like all of you, and you'll notice looking ahead to verses 10 through 12, that here Peter is quoting from Psalm chapter 34, verses 12 through 16 to be exact, which Peter and the early church were really familiar with, Psalm 34, as being a psalm for the prescription for the meaning of life. And that's what Psalm 34 addresses, how to have a fulfilling, valuable, meaningful life. And this is not to say that we don't go through challenges in our lives that are really difficult to explain. There's so many injustices in the world, so many terrible things that are happening to people that there's just no reason as to why these things are happening to you. And perhaps some of you, that to explain them away in such a mechanical way that if I just gave you a couple of verses and just prescribed those to you to paint as to why God is allowing those things to happen to you, it really paints God into this corner of lacking love and compassion and care for you because they're cheap. And when we read Psalm 34... It's not to be read to explain away every hardship or horrific circumstance a person faces in their life. I'm also not saying that the power of God is not present in the Word of God. It absolutely is. But sometimes we just can't receive it because of the circumstances or the situations that we are in. And so God uses us as the hands and feet of His to kind of get that ready. Get that soil ready. And what Psalm 34 is, is a general teaching about truth. It's not to be applied to every terrible situation that you and I face. 
For example, we look at Proverbs chapter 25, verse 20, and it says this, Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. There's some prep work to be done sometimes. right? There's some other things to be done sometimes. You can't just prescribe stuff like that. And Psalm 34 and what we have here in 1 Peter chapter 3 is about taking an aggressive, proactive approach to goodness. A really effective way to prevent doing evil is to do good. That's a really good way to stop doing evil is just to do good. And when we do good, there's a blessing that accompanies that goodness. That's just good common sense, right? And here's some more good common sense about aggressively, proactively pursuing good. And it's in Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. So you see how doing good is proactive. It's active, right? Walks not, nor stands, nor sits, but delights, meditates. It's active. Continuing on in verse 3, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruits in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Peter applied Psalm 34, verses 10 through 12, to those reading his letter. But prior to the Psalm 34 application, Peter shared some responsibilities that we are to live out amongst one another as Christian brothers and sisters. That things that are not natural tendencies for our flesh, they are things that were completely countercultural, just revolutionary things, right? See, the Roman world that Peter was living in at the time was really antagonistic towards Christians. It was a culture that was hostile towards a Christian worldview, and and Christians faced serious persecution. And to believe what Christians believed, you had to be crazy. You had to be absolutely nuts to believe what Christians believed. Does that sound familiar to any of you here? To any of you here, how many of you have relatives or friends that think you are just absolutely nuts to follow Jesus? I can tell you by my personal experience, my relatives think I'm nuts. You left what job? You left making that much to making what? And you have four kids now? What are you doing? And they think I'm absolutely nuts. And some of your friends and family probably think the same thing. They probably wonder and they can't understand why you live the way you live, why you talk the way you talk, why you give the way you give, why you serve the way you serve, why you do the things you do. They just think you're nuts. You give how much of your money away every year? For what? Why don't you buy a car? Why don't you go buy this? Why don't you go provide this for your kids? Why don't you go do that stuff? You give how much? And living the gospel life, the good news of Jesus' life, people that are unfamiliar with that, that are outside of that, they just think you're absolutely nuts. See, this is what's happening in West Africa right now with the Ebola outbreak. I don't know if you realize this. Last month, there was a story in Slate. How many of you read Slate? Just just you liberals? Okay. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm identifying with you. I read it too. So there's an article there written by an atheist named Brian Palmer. And his article was about 
the worry that he has that so many healthcare workers treating the Ebola outbreak are Christians. That is really worrisome to him. That Christian missionaries, and he's puzzled why people would go through all of that education and then voluntarily give care to these people, making very little money or raising their own support to be there. Like, this is driving him nuts. He wrote an article about it. And so healthcare workers paid nothing. You know, you got to raise your own support. And what he seems to be upset about is that those people aren't doing it for the purity of medical science or the purity of doing medicine, that they're doing it in Jesus' name. Duh! That's so stupid! Of course! If we just did it for the sake of medicine, wouldn't all the doctors flee over there? Why else would they go? That's dumb! That's why they're there! That's why they're there! That's why Christians are serving those in West Africa. That's what Christians are called by God to serve in that way. Do! It's nothing new. It's silly. But they think you're nuts. People think you're crazy, and it's nothing new. In the 200s, there was a huge plague in Europe, right? And maybe you guys know of this, the plague of Cyprian. Cyprian was the bishop of Carthage, and this was, so in the Roman Empire, this huge outbreak went out of the plague. Some people now think it's smallpox and all the other, but who cares? That's not the point. But during that time, there were a ton of people who converted to Christianity. Why? Why is that? Because Christians do what they do. Christians do what they do. And you can read all about this stuff. And in fact, you can read this book that's written by a non-Christian. He's a sociologist. He wrote this book called The Rise of Christianity because he was just amazed. at How did this little religion that came out of nowhere just kind of explode? His name's Rodney Stark. You can read that book. I'm not saying to go read like non-Christian. I'm, read the book if you want to. Anyway. But during the height of this epidemic, 5,000 people were dying a day in Rome. 5,000. I mean, it makes this Ebola thing look like nothing. 5,000 a day. And so when epidemics like this happen, like in West Africa, what happens? Who leaves first? The people that can, right? The people that can. If you have the means to transport all of your stuff, all of your household, all of your valuables, everything, you do. And so you leave. And so if you had the means to get out of town, you did. And so when someone in your household back then contracted the disease, what would happen? You left them. You left them. That's just a normal thing. You and I would not fathom that idea nowadays. Do you see the influence of Christianity on your life? That didn't happen back then. We're done. Leave that guy. And so... Many Christians during the time of this plague, they didn't do that. That's not what the Bible taught them. That's not what Jesus taught them. They were aggressively doing good. Bishop Dionysius of Alexandria wrote this. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. 
he also wrote this. The heathen behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease, but do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. And during this time, the cities were just swelling up with orphans and widows and strangers and homeless and the poor. Who provided those people new families? Who provided those people new community that freed them of those fears, that provided them a new hope? Christians. It was the Christians that did that. Even the emperor, Julius, took notice of this. He wrote, the impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our poor lack aid from us. See, they lived out Matthew 7, verse 12. right? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. They took Acts chapter 20, verse 35 to heart. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. They knew Romans chapter 12, verse 10. They knew what it meant. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And then going back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, what he wrote there proved true. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, Peter didn't write anything about irritating the world. We are very good at that, right? Us Christians, we've become very good at that. Irritating the world and ditching them during their greatest need. I'm really proud to call myself a Christian with those guys standing up in West Africa. Or just doing what the rest of the world does. Just living like the rest of the world, that it's really no difference between us as Christians and those living in the world. And it's quite the contrary, right? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15 for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. See, as Christians, we have these responsibilities. We are given opportunities by God to exercise our faith, to work out our salvation, right? Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, God is working in you. God is working in you. And when Peter wrote... Verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to you this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. These aren't things that we're to do so that we can earn favor with God. All these things that are listed here, right? Having unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, blessing others. Those things don't earn us anything. It's not a list of to-dos. 
This is not a list of Peter writing down, this is what you are to do. And if it's not that, then what is it then? What is this if this is not a list of those things? This is what this is. These are characteristics of one who belongs to God. Of one who is indeed born again. Of one who is indeed called to be one of his own. Of one who with certainty has been filled with the Holy Spirit. Of one who actually has been empowered by God to do things that he's incapable of on his own. And when that is authentically, genuinely true in your life, this is what flows out of it just naturally. It's not a checklist of just your self-righteousness. I'm that. I'm I'm that. I'm that. Oh, you're good. It's not a way for us to score points with God like you got like five out of six. and Oh, yay. This is simply who we are because we are his children and God has transformed us. So this is who we are. Now, what's the first quality that we belong to God and that we are indeed living the Christian life? Verse 8, unity of mind. And I'm going to spend the majority of the time here because I think this one is so important for us. That we are of one mind. Now, you look at John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. John wrote this, I do not ask for these only, the disciples present there, but also for those who will believe in me. So after them, including us, including you and me, through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, all of us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, all of you, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The unity of mind is a characteristic of those who belong to Jesus. Now you look at the early church in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. They were of one mind. They were living in harmony. Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now when you decided to come to church this morning, how much of you came? How much of you came? Physically speaking, all of you, right? I know Halloween just passed and maybe you think something else, your hand can be there or something. But anyway, all of you is here, physically. But here's the thing, this is a little different. Even though you are physically here, for some of you, not all of you is here, right? Sometimes your mind is elsewhere. And so you can be physically present here with us, but your mind isn't, or your heart isn't, or your spirit isn't. But what has enclosed you, so that all your guts and stuff doesn't come out, is here. 
Now, Peter didn't just write about being physically present. He wrote about having unity of mind, not unity of presence. Right? Unity of mind. Luke chapter 22, verse 19. Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance of me. So yes, there's this physical presence in taking communion, right? There are these physical elements that we partake in. And with physically doing, there's also this remembrance. The unity of mind when we take communion together. It's not about just the physical act. There's something that is happening in our mind that is unifying us as we take those things, remembering what Jesus did for us. And we're not just here physically together as a church. We're here hopefully, with like mind, one-mindedness, living in harmony. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, in our church, I think this is something that needs to be addressed, which is why we're going to spend more time on this than the other five. I believe that there are folks who are genuinely seeking to have a unity of mind. But how can we possibly truly have a unity of mind with such a diverse group of people? We are all over the place. If you put out any issue, we're going to be split. We don't all agree on anything. We don't even all agree probably in here about who Jesus is. I hope that's true because I want you to be saved, those who don't believe that, and we want to disciple you. But we don't agree on all this. So how in the world can a church have unity of mind with so many generations and so many ethnicities and races and socioeconomic differences and all the education, all this stuff, especially in in the Bay Area, in East Bay, right here in Oakland, with all this diversity, how are we going to have unity of mind? Now, the world would say that you bring about unity by having a clear, within an organization, mission statement or a purpose statement. That's how you do it, where the purpose is clearly defined and it's easy to point to and people can recite it and they can point back to it and they can do it. And so that there has to be a clear mission, that there has to be a clear purpose, and that's the way you achieve unity within an organization. It probably helps. It probably helps. But haven't you witnessed organizations that have really, really clear mission statements and really, really clear purpose statements just completely implode? Even some really, really great churches that we deem as successful and thriving, and they have their mission statements clearly printed on everything, and you go to their conferences, and it's there, and you go to their workshops, and you go to their church, and it's on all the printed materials, and it's on all the websites, and it's on all the stuff, and every meeting that they have, they're talking about this stuff, and then you go there, and it's just a chaotic mess. If you don't believe me, I can point you to one. Several, actually. So, I would argue that there wasn't a unity of mind there, and they had all that stuff. See, it's not by our flesh. 
It's not by our flesh. There has to be a spiritual work taking place that brings this about by the power of God. How can a group of sinners like us ever come together with unity of mind? It's not going to be by our own strength. It's not going to be by our own intellect of like, oh, we define this and we have this and so now we point this through. Everybody follow along. Well, we're really diverse here, aren't we? Some people here aren't going to agree with that statement. They don't believe that. They want to go in different paths. They think the church should go a different way and this way. And I'm not saying you're wrong, that maybe the church does have to go a different way. I have no idea. I just know that it has to be a work of the Spirit, not of our own flesh and things that are just coming out of our own mind because we're following the ways of the world, thinking the ways of the world, they come out with a clear mission statement and purpose statement, and they have a really successful company. You take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. And this is the verse I want to point out. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Unity of mind will not work by works of the flesh. You can't put it together that way. We can come up with the greatest mission statement. We can come up with the greatest purpose statement. But unity of mind will only be achieved under divine authority. It's only by God. And these past several weeks, we've been looking at the topic of submission and authority. And this is where Peter was leading to after writing all about those things and different submissions of submission and who to be subject to. And when this all comes to finality here when he says finally everyone and then he writes about this unity of mind and when will this unity of mind happen back to Ephesians verse 13 until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God it's not until then it's not until we ultimately submit to the authority of Jesus that we're going to experience unity of mind Being under the authority of Jesus is what brings unity of mind. And without it, then the truth of God's word is disregarded. It's not as valuable. It's not truth. And we remain immature children. Until the church understands that the unity of mind is only achieved under the authority of Jesus and nothing else. We won't have it. Why? Because every new and good idea that comes along is a new and good idea that we were going to want to adopt. And you can see this in church history. Through all these different movements of where the church is moving and all this stuff, right? Like big box church, emerging church. Now we're going to small groups and we're going to more small groups and we're saying like, oh, it's more. It's just changing. It's just evolving all the time as to what church structures are looking like and we're always claiming that it's a biblical thing. Don't cheapen the saints of the past. They did what they were supposed to do. God was using them too. You and I are here because of what they did. So that we may no longer be children 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. See, the latest and the greatest ideas will have a stronger foothold in our lives than the authority of Jesus if we allow that. And then we'll just move with those things and we're just going to be tossed to and fro and doing those things unless we have a unity of mind under the authority of Jesus in his word. We'll just kind of go to the next good idea. How to do church. How to structure church government. How to whatever. Right? We'll just do that. Now what do we do instead? What do we do instead? Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Unity in the church isn't about us coming together physically on a Sunday, singing together and fellowshipping together and serving and giving together and doing community together. Because our bodies might be here, but our mind is elsewhere, right? So are we worshiping together with like-mindedness? Serving together with like-mindedness? Not just physically present and doing stuff together, but is our mind in it? Is our spirit in it? Is our heart in it? And I think this is where some in our church are divided. Because you might be here physically, but your mind is somewhere else. It's doing something else. Your mind's not here. Your spirit's not here. Your heart's not here. You're just physically here. See, we all have the same composer. We all have the same composer. The Bible is not a different composition from one denomination or church from one to another. But every church has a different conductor, and every church has a different orchestra. And some create some great harmony. Some orchestras don't. They sound pretty bad. Right? And so you go to some churches and you're like, whoa. And I'm not talking about the physical stuff, right? I'm talking about the spirit, right? So, for example, I've been asked to be a consultant at a church. During my time off when I was on vacation, I went to go visit them, actually. And so when I went there and I stepped in there, it was so heavy. Everything was good. Somebody there welcomed me, and they were very nice and handed me a bulletin and said hi. And, and there was like, you know, 80 people or so there. And the music was good. The, the guy up there was good. But I sensed something is wrong here, which is why they asked me to help them. And it's the same thing. Like when, when people come into our church and they can see this, and, and Jane's doing a great job here, and Maff or Stefano or whoever's doing announcements here is like, really welcoming and funny and stuff, and then our greeters are handing said, everything's kind of clicking, we have all of our stuff, people find parking, and it's beautiful weather, and we're in Oakland, and, and you can go get some food, and you can get some awesome stuff by Julie, Terry, or Mark Enomoto in the cafe, like, you can get some awesome stuff, we have small groups, we have all this service to our community, everything looks great, physically, outside. But what about the mind? What about the harmony and, and all that stuff? And in some places, really good. Some of you guys are like just like your own little jazz band and you're sounding good. But then others of you try to bring country into that. And it's not working. It's not working. You got to do the country over here. You can't meld the two, right? You got to do the thing. And so... I'd like for us as a church to pray for some great harmony, for like-mindedness, 
not for just like the physical bodies of what's happening here, just the ministries, like tangibly what's happening in terms of like operations and administration and things like that. But what's happening in that underbelly of stuff where that stuff really matters. And so I ask that we would all pray about harmony, about like-mindedness, about unity of mind in our church. And we have a prayer service at five o'clock right before the evening service. Now, the next quality that we belong to God and we indeed live the Christian life, sympathy. To suffer with, to feel with another person, to have a sensitivity of what's going on in someone else's life. And if we have unity of mind, we'll have sympathy towards similar things because we'll be united in mind. Right, so we'll share sympathy within the body. And it's just like our physical bodies, right? So your physical body is united to itself. You don't have to tell it that. It just naturally is. Your body moves together and your body sympathizes with itself. So that when your ankle is hurt, you limp. Your body is sympathizing by shifting more weight to the other foot so that your injured foot doesn't have to. And then there's all this biochemistry stuff going on, right? Like the histamines and the swelling and all that kind of stuff is going on because it's sympathizing with this injury. And so it's similar to us that when we have this unity of mind, we'll be in tune to sympathizing with the body, the different parts of the body that we'll know that there's a heavier burden that needs to be lifted here. Well, yeah, it's going to cost us a little bit, but our body's hurting. And so that's part of the value of church. And this is where unity of mind plays out. This is where sympathy of mind plays out. In all the imperfections of a church and its people, Jesus gives us unity of mind. Jesus gives us sympathy for one another. And we can't be sympathetic with each other if we aren't united. So the lack of sympathy is a sign of a lack of unity of mind. That we don't know each other well enough to bear one another's burdens. And I'm not just talking about our church here. But what about the brothers and sisters abroad who are facing persecution around the world? That if we aren't in unity of mind with the greater body of Christ, not just our church, but with the greater body of Christ in the world, how are we going to have a sympathy for what's happening, the atrocities that are happening across the world, those things that are happening to Christians with ISIS and ISIL. When we're one with Jesus, when we have a unity of mind, we'll have a sympathy for those in the body, in the greater body, even if we don't know them personally. Romans chapter 12, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Sympathy. Third quality, that we belong to God and that we indeed live a Christian life. Brotherly love. Right? This is where the word Philadelphia comes from. So you look at verses 10 through 11 in Psalm 34. Look forward to verses 10 through 11 and you look at Psalm 34 where 10 through 11 were from. And it helps us define this. Brotherly love. Reading ahead, verses 10 through 12. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. See, our words are not to be used for harm. Let him turn away from evil and do good. So our actions will not be used to lead people away from God, but towards God. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So we are to look to reconcile and to restore broken relationships. 
For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So this type of love, it's a proactive type of love. There's nothing passive about it, right? Fourth quality, a tender heart. Now a direct English translation from the Greek word is having strong bowels. It's guts, right? Guts. But from the Hebrew mindset, from Peter's mindset, he's speaking about compassion, Right? From the Hebrew mindset, when they're using these words, it's about compassion. It's about mercy, right? And so, again, it's proactive. This is not a quality that you can receive in passivity. It's proactive. It's going out. Fifth quality, a humble mind. A humble mind. So all of these qualities, they're related to one another. You can't have unity of mind if there's no humility of mind. And you'll truly have a humble mind when you truly see who Jesus is. And when you... See who Jesus really is. Seeing who you really are is really humbling. It's extremely humbling. right? The closer you get to Jesus, and it's kind of this revelation that happened to me. The closer I get to Jesus, the further I realize that I am from him. It's like a twilight zone thing. It's like, are, what? I'm getting closer to you, but you're farther. And when we look at Jesus, we see all of these things to their perfection, right? Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. And the last quality we find here is blessing, which Jesus was also perfect at. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Again, proactive. And it's not just a regular proactivity, right? Because I'd like to term it like this. It's an aggressive proactivity. It's really aggressive. Because it says this. Not repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling. That's challenging enough, isn't it? If you just kind of stop at that when somebody reviles you. It's hard enough to just be like. You're not going to say anything. You know, nothing good to say, don't say anything. That's hard enough. It's pretty passive, though. Right? It's passive. You just don't do anything. And you can even be proactive. You can take a step forward and be proactive in how to deal with people who have done something evil against you or have reviled you, and you just want to avoid them. So you can proactively do something that when you see them, hmm, And so it's not passive in that you're doing something or you can just be like chummy and you know, that's proactive. It's proactive. But this is aggressively proactive, which is really ticking me off because we're told to bless. So you're like, all right, Jesus, it's hard enough for me not to return reviling and just be silent, be passive. It's hard enough for me to smile and extend my hand and shake somebody's hand that's treated me bad. But now you're telling me to actually bless them? Come on, Jesus. What's going on? This is horrible. It's bad enough I go to church with that guy. But I have to bless that guy? Yes. And I'm waiting for those blessings. Um. Doing good in God's eyes is not passive in that you just don't repay evil for evil. It's not even proactive in that you just avoid somebody or that you show up to them and smile and shake their hand and, you know, pat them on the back and say hi and, you know, have a little chit-chat and stuff like that. It's aggressively 
doing good. It is blessing. It's blessing. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. You see how aggressively good it is? It's not passive, and it's not just proactive in that avoiding or being cordial or friendly. It is going another step. It's aggressive, right? It's like love, do good, bless, pray. I'm like, oh my gosh, God. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain blessing. And the thing is, you know, this is all grace. This is what God did for us. This is what God did for us. And it had nothing to do with us deserving blessing or deserving anything good. God didn't avoid us. Like, Adam, you sin. Hmm. Or I guess, come on, Holy Spirit and Jesus to go play cards or something. Like, he didn't avoid. He entered the garden, right? He started looking for Adam. He was going in. He was really aggressive in how he approached this matter, right? He sent his only son, Jesus, here to live with us and to die for us, to redeem us. So you think about these verses, and as you exit, how can you bless others? And this is kind of the practical application to take away. How can you bless others? God calls us to more than not doing evil. right? God calls us more than just being passive. He calls us to aggressively do good. He doesn't even just tell us to be proactive without the doing good, like the avoidance thing or like just being friendly in the face but nothing else. Aggressively doing good, to bless those who don't treat us well or who haven't treated us well. And these are the qualities of the true Christian. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, and blessing others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and I do ask, Lord, that you would work within your supernatural power to bring about unity of mind to our church, realizing that we are under the authority, under the headship of Jesus. So I ask, Lord, that you would help us to embrace these six qualities as children of yours and that we would have them. I ask, God, that you would reveal to folks here how we are to proactively pursue good, to bless others, and to go beyond just the simplicity of not reviling one who has reviled us, and to even go past the next step of being proactive in that we are proactively avoiding or proactively showing a good face and even posture, but within ourselves we are not being like-minded with our brothers and sisters that we would take that final step, God, and we would bless one another, that we would aggressively do good for one another. In Jesus' name, amen.